Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest today is Garrett Dillenhunt, and we're going to talk about his latest project, especially Red Right Red Right Hand with Orlando Bloom. Correct. How are you, Garrett? Thanks for stopping by. I'm very well, and uh, I'm really appreciative that you're you're speaking to me today. Absolutely. So let's talk about specifically how you got this project and how this happened for you. Sure. Uh, well, this is this is a fun one because I just got a phone call and said you want to do this movie. Uh, we really like it when that happens. Yeah. And uh, it's the kind of thing I like. You know, I like I like action. I like some kind of physical challenge in a project, and this had a ton of them. Uh, and uh, it was a good group of people. Uh, my buddy Walton Goggins had worked with the Nelms Brothers before, one of their uh, one of their earlier movies. Uh, and John Hawks, I think, was in Small Town Crime. He's a buddy of mine from Deadwood. So uh, these, they came highly recommended. And uh, Orlando Bloom was the kicker. He's a real sweetheart. And uh, we had a few good meetings and dove right in, shaved my head, and got to work. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the premise of the movie, kind of talk about that, and then we'll talk about your character. Okay. Uh, it's uh, I, I keep saying it's me and Orlando Bloom doing some hillbilly on hillbilly crime. We're in Kentucky. Orlando and I both are uh, former employees of the local drug kingpin. We've tried to sort of turn our lives around. The way I do that is through religion, and I become a preacher, uh, sort of unordained, and clearly still has a lot of problems I'm working on because he's not perfect. And uh, and Cash gets out, Cash is who Orlando plays, he gets out a different way, but, you know, loves his family and wants to take care of his family, and she doesn't want to let let her best employee go. So she finds ways to try to lure him back in, and it forces a confrontation. And I help him out. I'm that, I'm that kind of eye-for-an-eye preacher, I guess, in this. But it's a lot of action, a lot of... A lot of bad guys, a lot of blood, and uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> it sounds like a, a, a blast, man. It really does. And and, and shout out to Prestonsburg, uh, Kentucky, one of the stations, WDOC in Kentucky, that we have our show on. So talking about the whole process of Kentucky and Appalachia. Uh, did you guys shoot in Appalachia? No, not really, but we shot in several different small towns. Uh, you caught me off guard. I should have thought of that, which ones, but I, I sure loved I sure loved the shooting there. And uh, the food was amazing. The local act, talent was great. Uh, and the atmosphere for days, you know, we're out in the woods, you know, running through the, the you know, the leaves and playing, playing pretend with our pretend guns and punching each other and it was it, it was fun you know it it was kind of a kind of an actor's dream these these kinds of gigs we all want to be tough guys don't we yeah so and as a preacher a tough guy i guess we're gonna have to definitely watch the film to see more there's not a lot of touch tough preacher tough guys are there well i don't know you know like you, you think of uh pale rider or something, you know, I think there's a lot of conflicted folk out there. And in the old days, in the old Irish guys, you know, they'd, they'd teach their kids to box, you know. Uh, this feels like a throwback. This feels like one of those, you know. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's trying to do their best. But when the chips were down, it's up to us to take care of ourselves, you know, at least in this world. No, no doubt. It's, it's it, most definitely. And what do you think you learn most about playing that character? What did I learn most? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I mean, it would have been nice if they, uh, you know, if he'd have taken a little more time to sort of find another solution, I suppose. You know, I, I, I think sometimes our own failures drive us to do things 
uh, that we normally wouldn't, you know. And sometimes I think you need to blow up, take a breath before taking that action. You know, there's there's other ways to make amends and going deeper down the rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's something, and I guess a bad guy. Do you like playing bad guys, Garrett? Well, this guy's not a bad guy, but I don't mind. <laughs> I've played a few. Uh, I think there's a humanity in there. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard this before. You know, it's the only way to make them memorable is if you make them believable. And uh, that they're human beings, you know, who, who are the bad guys we remember. And that they're these flawed individuals that just think they're right, you know, and have reasons that in their mind make sense. Maybe not to us, but. I think just try to keep them human is, is the key to playing a good bad guy. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about the bad guy. I am a former professional wrestler who's now 51 and uh -huh. decided to make a comeback into the ring at 51 years old. No. So it's pretty exciting. Yes. How'd that go? Uh, it's, I'm already training again. You know, used to the ring. I can, I, don't know, I just got to get the ring rust off and I'm looking to do a documentary on my story. So I'm already going to be an Indiegogo fundraising and all that stuff. So it's going to be pretty cool stuff. And Garrett, you look like you have a laundry list of other projects as well. Tell us a little bit about what some of the other projects coming up for you. What's going on with you? Ah, uh, okay. Uh, well, I, I produced my own show called Sprung, which you all can watch anytime you want. If you want to feel good on prime it's free, uh, and uh, I just finished a series called Hysteria with Bruce Campbell, who's a personal favorite of mine, and Anna Camp. It's kind of a horror dramedy series. It was actually a lot of fun as well. And uh, I start shooting uh, my next film in May. It's called uh, Every Other Weekend. I think is a beautiful uh, period story as well from like the 70s, early 80s. I shoot in upstate New York, so... I'm fortunate to be working. Hey, and, and again, now the projects are coming back, right? I was talking to another actor friend of mine, uh, and she was talking about, like, she thought things were so slow with the strike, and then everything stopped, and then everything is just picking up like crazy, isn't it? Well, I, I think it will soon. It's actually, there's, there's, kind, of a, there's kind of a lull, I think, as, as people, uh, it's certainly more than during the strike. There was nothing during the strike, but... The business is in flux, and they're trying to figure out a way to make it work for everybody. And I think it's not as busy as people were expecting, but I, but it will be. Give it give it a couple more months. Let award season end. You know, let them figure out the new business model. You know, streaming's not working, so they're trying to figure it out. I think we'll, we'll see a dip in money for a while. We'll see a dip in uh, production for a while. But once they find their feet, hopefully everything will come back. Well, it's good you're working, and that's working hard, right, Garrett? For sure, you got to work hard Ooh. to keep keep things going, right? And just constantly never, never stop. But but what's you know that's how everyone is, isn't it? You know, this rough out there right now. Everybody's struggling, so certainly don't want to suggest that I work any harder than anybody else, or or uh, or I'm more deserving. You know, I feel very fortunate to make my living playing pretend. Exactly. I really appreciate guys like you talking to us about it, you know. Hey, and thank goodness this is my show. I own the rights to it. I have it on. A, I'm the number six celebrity podcast in the world, so this is just fun for me, right? Fantastic. And I'll be working with clients Fantastic. in a couple minutes, and just go figure and get on these tours. And thanks again to Art Sears. I love Art. He's amazing, and I'm back with him. I've been really. I'm I'm number six celebrity podcaster in the world according Dude. to Feedspot, Garrett. So you definitely have to check me out and some of my other work. But we got to do you that as well. Yeah, for sure. It. Best place, people, again, if we're talking about one movie that's available, uh, Red Right Hand is now, uh, will be available digitally tomorrow and uh, in theaters and digital right. on February 23rd. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. All right. We appreciate it, Garrett. Thanks for stopping by, man, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. All right. Stay healthy, take care of yourself, and win. I will win. No, you're gonna have to. You're gonna see me soon, and we'll be on a red carpet somewhere together. Trust me, I got other projects as well. Wait. Take care, man. See ya. All right. Okay, bye -bye. you're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Three, two, one. We're back here to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about our two guests. 
Of course, I'm excited about our two guests. I'm doing great. Thanks, Neil. I'm actually at the National Christian Media Convention here in Nashville. So if people walk behind me, sorry, Donald Trump is going to be speaking behind me at some point. But anyway, two of my favorite casts from The Chosen, George Harrison Xanthus and Luke Dimion. I love you guys. Dimion. And you're both so talented and have done so many things beyond uh, beyond what what you're doing now. And you're both really funny from what I understand and musical from what I understand. So the set has got to be pretty fun. First, George, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And you play John, John the Beloved, who uh, um, does a lot of writing. And so I'm curious, George, how did you even end up on The Chosen? It's funny, like a lot of people get some, especially maybe even Luke, like you can, you can ask them how they auditioned and it might be kind of simple. I auditioned for the role, but I actually went in for Simon Peter uh, because there weren't enough lines uh, for John in the opening four episodes. My first line for those uh, chosen nerds out there was go get caught in a net. So I imagine that's a very difficult like kind of scene to just try and like, is that John? Like to just get like 400 people coming in to say one line. So no, they get you to read a, a scene for, for Simon Peter and then they kind of get a vibe. It didn't end there for me. I actually went in next, the next day, Dallas was like, here's seven pages. And it was for Quintus, the Roman praetor. <laughs> and then the day after I landed John. So I don't, I, I kind of, I played Simon Peter, very stoic and very like, you know, um, you know, very uh, serious. And then I played uh, Quintus as very, you know, cheeky and kind of brash. And maybe John exists somewhere between those two. You know, I'm imagining you bald now and it is the most beautiful thing I think that's ever come to my brain. By the way, thank goodness I didn't get the role of Quintus because, oh my God, Brandon is perfect. Oh my God, Brandon is a powerhouse. He's perfect. so good. Now, George, did you learn a lot about John preparing for this? Hundred percent. Now, I mean, I have to admit, I thought I was playing John the Baptist. I didn't. I didn't even. I kind of <laughs> forgot that there was a John the disciple, and then someone's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Um, and I was kind of scared because I was like, oh, John the Baptist. I know he might die early in the series. I was just kind of like thinking as an actor a little bit, and then when they said. John, I like researched. It was like the last apostle. I was like, oh, good. The spin-off potential for John. <laughs> no, but um, I, I actually, I, I, as as research, I, I read, I, I've read John's gospel. I'd never read it before, and um, you were just saying before, like John as a great writer, he honestly is. I would highly recommend people even explore the ancient Greek uh, writings if you can. It's very difficult to translate from ancient Greek into English, but it's fascinating book when you have the ancient Greek context and uh me being Greek I was so proud about that I didn't know that he wrote his book in ancient Greek he wrote a lot of his stuff on Patmos which is in Greece very close to my family's island uh in Greece so this is all the stuff I learned about John he's a pretty cool guy yeah that is so cool yeah John is a pretty cool guy there is some stuff that you know you and I can talk about offset sometime that John wrote and your take on it yeah. and Luke Luke, you have the role of roles of the biggest villain probably ever in the history of the world, Judas. And I would like to ask you the same question. How did you get Judas? But even deeper than that, what did you think when you, that when that's the role that you got? Oh, again, I'm, I'm sorry. My, my answer is actually a little less fun than George's. I I got submitted by my management team. I auditioned a few times, uh, first for characters that I uh, I thought I was going for, and then they just kept sending me uh, different character sides. And eventually they were like, oh, can we have your number? We want to send them something special. And we're like, he, they could have my email. I, I don't know about number. Uh, and then they sent me the sides for Apprentice. And they were like, oh, for context, this is Judas. I was like, great, cool. And then I auditioned for it. And uh, Dallas took one look at me. and was like, yeah, gross. He's, he's perfect. Uh, cast him. <laughs> and uh, that's, I, that's how I got it. And I'm honestly 
pretty happy. I, I love complicated characters and uh, it's fun to play this one. So, yeah. Do you like, do you like the fact of playing a bad guy? Have you played bad guys before? I, I've definitely played some bad guys before. I've played some um, tragic heroes before, uh, especially when I was uh, studying acting. There have been many times I've, I've gotten to play parts of Hamlet and uh, Macbeth, which I know I'll never actually get a chance to play Macbeth, but that's a very same type of a guy who started out as a hero and then slowly devolved into like... Um, like uh, uh, just a broken king who was paranoid to all end. It was it's it's cool to just play these kinds of characters that you could even just easily paint off as a villain, but actually are a bit more complicated. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, and Judas is a good guy for a long time. He's he's not necessarily a bad guy the the whole time, right? I mean, he's on. Um, walking with Jesus and learning and, and figuring stuff out and taking a little money here and there, but still, you know, uh, pretty devout until things go bad at the end, but we haven't gotten there yet in The Chosen. And so it's, I, it is a complicated character, but I have seen some of your Facebook and you probably will be in Macbeth someday. You'll probably be in all of them someday because you're really good. And so anyway, I hear that there's uh, maybe like a mixtape that you guys made, like a dance. Oh, beat no, it, was a, it was a full music video in, in <laughs> yeah. full respect. We, we which went hasn't out. been taken down yet, which is really good. I thought it would be copyrighted Dude, or something. I told but... you, man, it's a full cover. We, we put our entire talent, every last drop of it. They can't, they can't take offense to that. Right. Can I just say also, we actually did that um, as part of a dare. We were trying to raise $50,000 for a, a chosen fan. that we, we were visiting this young fan uh, every week that we were filming in Utah. And uh, he said as a joke, like, you know, it's like, cool to have $50,000. He was such a joker. And he was like, I'm not being serious. But um, we, we, we took him seriously. And uh, unfortunately, he lost his, his battle with cancer. Uh, so we thought, okay, let's let's take that little joke and let's make it a reality. Let's help out, you know, his family and let's, you know, um, kind of, uh, yeah, do that in memory of him. And you know what? Chosen fans from all over the world, we're talking Brazil, United Kingdom, uh, Puerto Rico, Spain, Australia, New Zealand came in and we raised $50,000. And that's why you're seeing us dance around. And I actually, I know for a fact, Jared, who's the, the young boy, that we were dedicating this to, he would have been laughing his socks off, honestly. <laughs> it's, it's a real testament to the, to the love and the connection that this fandom has for each other and yeah. their their love and compassion just throughout because they all came in droves. I There was a part where I, I didn't think we were going to get to um, to our goal, but we did through through like mm. all, all odds, we got it and we were able to get that money to his family who honestly absolutely deserved every every penny of it and we were very happy to dance and sing our hearts out in make fools of ourselves jared baker <laughs> now george thinking about specifically your character john and its development and you know we all know mostly about the gospels with john and a little bit of mention of john that's the ch that's what has been amazing about the chosen is characters really get more development on the chosen right to really know more about that character are you kind of creating in a lot of ways too based on some of the ideas that the script says for john and putting it into your own 100 percent, yeah it's actually it's like again like peeking behind the curtain and giving the, the nuts and bolts of an of an actor's process i um you know i think there are moments where i think it's been great that dallas has kind of stepped in and, and said let's let's keep on this path so one of the paths that he's he's wanted me to keep on is let's keep him a little bit cheeky and brash and kind of you know a bit of a know-it-all and and you know you often get that like there's there's two ways i'll always deliver a line i'll, I'll deliver it like 
how we know John now, which is a little bit kind of cheeky. And then I'll deliver it in a more somber way. And uh, Dallas has those two to kind of choose from. And at this stage of John's journey, it's su such an interesting character. We kind of do have this kind of cheeky, brash, you know, I'm a, I, I want to be the best kind of thing. And that's a complete juxtaposition to, uh, I read this the other day, uh, that because I'm like, oh, why is John considered the disciple of love? Not just the beloved, but the disciple of love. I think he mentions the word, uh, again, writing in ancient Greek. So he's actually using agape and um, he would be using philo. So those are the two Greek words for, um, for love. But he mentions it more than anybody, uh, any, any other New Testament book, if I'm not mistaken. If I've got that wrong, please correct me. But um, yeah, how do we see this brash, young, impetuous, zealous son of thunder turn into this disciple of love? Um, and that's been the fun of of the show. And and you know, when we did our, our we did a bit of a flash forward to seeing John. I think if you guys remember in season two, we see John as an older man, um, not that much older. But I was that was another moment where me and Dallas talked about it, and he was like, "Let's raise the volume a little bit, maybe." And he actually chose all of my subdued performances because. Mm -hmm. That's it's almost like the the Obi bring the Star Wars connections in. That's like the Obi Wan Kenobi, like when he's in like <laughs> when he's the old man, he's like quiet look. But when he's like younger, he's like more agile. He can backflip. So it'd be a really good little uh, good analogy and metaphor for John for those Star Wars yeah. geeks out there. Oh, easily best analogy I've I've heard yet. Yeah. Yeah. With it. that one, yeah, I should. That's right. From I just on, came up with, with it now. One. <laughs> yeah so what character is uh is judas in in star wars then <laughs> oh i think funny enough that's <laughs> say it you said i think perfectly in uh in opposition to his obi-wan i think judas is anakin i think <laughs> so good. he's a little uh tempestuous he's a little uh a little whiny he's got expectations he's got a lot of potential but uh the things he wants to focus on he he just doesn't trust the council and he's he doesn't like sand and he's just constantly surrounded by sand so he's just constantly agitated uh but to to uh <laughs> to john's obi-wan he tries to take his teachings in strides but his uh his natural instincts just get the better of him of wanting more he knows he wants more but he shouldn't he could be a better jedi the council <laughs> and you're definitely uh developing this character as well judas it looks like dallas lets you go move forward to uh, the mannerisms and the way that that character comes to life it sounds like with him is it's it's surprising honestly I, i've got to give props to dallas because i i i do have uh, a lot of ideas and i i always come to him with all that stuff and he's got a lot of his play but he always gives me the time to talk about it and to think like he's literally i'm th there are so many other actors we've got 12 and then some uh to focus on but he genuinely always th there was even times where i knew he didn't have the space to take in my ideas or notes but he literally came came to me he was like no don't don't stop bringing these to me just mm -hmm. uh, either i'll agree with them or i won't but don't stop allowing yourself to like imagine this character and for us to work with this together but so yeah that's that's just a testament to him he's he's yeah. an amazing director and, and you hear stuff like that about dallas sorry to interrupt but you he is such a it seems to me everybody that i've talked to from the chosen talks about how incredible the set is right how incredible the everybody is together like a, a different feeling on the set than anything they've done i hear that a lot and it starts at the head, right? And goes on down. So Dallas is kind of creating this or allowing this fun, loving on the outside camaraderie, whatever that's going on. Yeah. True. No, he's yeah. He's awesome. And I, yeah. I literally got like a, I got like a message on my phone like yesterday from Dallas and it was a joke and it was funny and I threw a joke back at him. So yeah, when you can chat to your director like that, I don't even, I, it sounds weird saying that. I mean, I should give him the respect and say, yes, my director, the showrunner, creator of the show, but the reality is he's all of our friend. <laughs> that's great. And that's, that makes it easy to work together right yeah, yeah. if you have a good leader that is able to have everyone feel comfortable everyone else develops the relationship like you two have yeah 
It's all yeah, no, so we got to thank him for that sometimes. Like, yeah, the yeah. only reason we're friends. He, we hated each other when we first met. I was just like, who's this short guy? And I was like, an Aussie? Sure. But Dallas really brought us together. And that's that's so, what solidified that's, our friendship. That is so cool. You know, one thing that I've wondered, like we, we see the finished product, right? But you must be take after take after take. So you're hearing words from the Bible. You are hearing Jesus preach take after take after take. Like, is there a difference than if you did just one take? Like, how how do you feel about that? It's, I think there would be a way, pretty big difference. I was just gonna I was just gonna say that you're you're the first person who's actually brought that up because I actually am the one that brings that up usually to people. So you do hear these things over and over. And Jonathan is such an amazing performer, uh, and he delivers it you know on the money every single time. So yeah, that is a, a unique. Uh, a, a unique benefit from the show is that we we don't just hear it for the first time like the audience does. We have the pleasure of hearing this uh, uh, five times from this angle and then 10 times from this angle. There's a lot of takes. And so you do, you start hearing different different moments and different things. And I remember a, a very poignant one for me is in, in uh, season two, we have the healing of the paralytic. And, uh, you know, there's like a question about kingdom of heaven and, and Jesus's answer is like obviously a parable taken from scripture. But after listening to that, like 20 times perfectly by Jonathan, um, I'm like, whoa, I didn't. I, it's it's a definitely another. Uh, yeah, you get a, a very unique uh, take on it, totally. unique understanding. All right, guys. Season four is in theaters and soon will be available everywhere. We'll just have to wait to hear when that happens. But I appreciate you guys both coming by. Great information and great stuff. And you guys really get along. I guess that's why you're on the tour together. So appreciate it. Yes, so. <laughs> All right. Works, that was a special. Works. Yeah. That was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love is Podcast, guys. Take care. We're back to the, to, to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Dr. Christopher Hall. So Dr. Hall, Nobel Prize nominated doctor, best-selling author, emergency room physician. How are you, Dr. Hall? And I know you're excited about our guest. Wow. You know, I'm doing great, Neil. You know, I'm very excited about our guest. Very much so. All right. Well, Chris, it's, it's nice to meet you. Ah, uh, yes. So Chris is going to introduce you and wait till you hear this introduction. Go ahead, Chris. Well, with no problem. You know, uh, we know it's my honor to uh, introduce uh, an, an actor of film and television, a blues and Americana song and writer and singer. Uh, we've seen him in such movies as The Wing Commander, Whiplash, um, Captain Phillips. Wow, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to welcome to the show, Mr. Chris Mulkey. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hi, Dr. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great, how are you? I'm good, I'm in my music studio right now. I'm. You know, we, I just got talking, done talking with Mr. Neil, and we're putting together this wrestling movie that I wrote, and I'm really excited about that. And just working away, awesome. you know, doing music, doing film, doing music. Yeah, it's cool. Go ahead, Chris. Your first question. I can. I, I've asked. Uh, this is part three for me interviewing Chris. So I'm sure I'm going to interview him more times. I'm going to meet him in person very soon. But good, Chris. Awesome. You know, with no problem, Chris. You know, we've seen you over the years in all these wonderful movies. And so, you know, I just, you know, I've, uh, I was looking at uh, your, you know, your back biography a little bit. And since you're from Wisconsin, uh, tell us a little bit about that, you know, growing up in Wisconsin and, and you know, how'd you get into acting and those kind of things? Well, my, my parents, my mom's from New Orleans and my dad's from Georgia and they got married. And my dad said, let's open a hardware store in Wisconsin. So they went up there and had me and my, my sister, Diane, and we lived there for a couple of years. Then we moved out west to Washington, and then we moved back to Minnesota. And he sold the hardware stores and, and um, went into business and did well. And I went to college there. And then I came to California. I produced a film and huh. I starred in and went to California, and the rest is history. Yeah, it's great. But uh, I, lo I loved, uh, I loved uh, you know, living in the Midwest. And for a little while, we lived in Atlanta, Georgia with my grandma because my dad's whole family's from ATL. So, you know, so right. and I'm back there a good bit, you know, 
So I'm, I'm really comfortable. All right, Chris, wow, next very, question. Very interesting. For, for, yeah, uh, very interesting. Yeah. yeah, no problem. I mean, I'm so excited, you know, to have Chris here on the show. And, you know, so you've been in Highwood for, you know, obviously a little bit, huh? And so, I mean, how have you seen things change, you know, in Hollywood over the time you've been there so far as just, you know, how you go about getting a job and, and those kind of things? Well, it's interesting, having been in Hollywood for four decades, uh, when I got here, everybody went to the meetings in the offices. So you showed up and first you showed up, Chris, and you got your what they call sides, which are the scenes that you're going to read. You got usually got right. those the day before, take them home, study them, then go back to the office and and meet and read. And you all sit in the hallway and it'd be you and me, Chris, and we're both going to be the bad guy. But, you know, but we're friends as actors. Right. And so it was always interested sitting there. And so as as time went on, I worked a lot. And then I just started getting straight up offers for movies and TV. And that's great. And so and then the uh, video came in and now we we lay stuff down on video on iPhones, which is just like a movie camera, uh, 1080p, and we send it in, or just, I think we send it in, but I think the last like five movies I've done are just straight up, hello, Chris, will you do our movie? So. Right. A lot, yeah. a lot of changes. Yeah, and so, in and, and, and Hollywood. And what do you expect those changes to continue? Because you're just, you just keep going, Chris. Yeah, I did. I embrace all the changes. You know, when we first started doing movies in Hollywood, um, nobody had radios, you know, so they couldn't radio the Teamsters to come up to pick up the guys. And, you know, it was all we had runners. Honestly, they had runners in Hollywood and it was just production assistants. And they go, you know, Neil, go down there and get the A.D. and tell him to uh, bring the bring the bring the food up here. We're going to eat on the set. Uh, you know? <laughs> then this guy, Neil, would go down. Down there and uh, and do that. It was it was great. It's all been great. I'm really uh, happy to be part of the Hollywood community. I, I've done 110 movies and 300 TV shows, and wow. you know, and you know, worked in different countries. Captain Phillips, you know, we shot that in the Mediterranean and on a on a real freighter right by Libya, and that was interesting. So, you know, it's fun. Exciting. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we had right. radios. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Chris, another question for um, Chris. The other Chris. Oh, yeah. yeah, no problem. Yeah, Chris. So, you know, the thing is, you know, you uh, went to college. Now, did you study acting in college or what did you study? Um, I started out as a history major and a wrestler at the University of Minnesota. And then um, I got into a, a friend of mine who was on the baseball team uh, at the University of Minnesota, great catcher, uh, uh, George Finley, really good athlete. Um, we were talking about I needed an elective, a non a non history course, non major course. He says, "Why don't you take acting?" I said, "No, I don't want acting. All those actors are crazy." I was right, by the way. He said, "No, no, you like <laughs> you, you like movies. You like Marlon Brando. That was my you know generation. And you like you know Steve McQueen and all these old act school actors." I said, "Okay, I'll take it." So I went there and I I took the beginning acting class from Dr. Linda Jenkins, and she was great. And I was a standout in the class. I got an A. And um, she said, awesome. you, sh you should continue to do this. And, and, um, and then I hooked up with, uh, at the university, they were writing a play, kind of an improv play and a comedy play. And I helped write the play. And then we took the play to New York. And it was a big success in New York. And I went, well, this is easy. I'm just going to do, I'm just, so I changed my major quit wrestling and uh, <laughs> here I am. Wow, so you were never finished up your history degree. You finished no, up no. as, as I, got a, I got a degree in, uh, in, in uh, uh, performing arts and, uh, and um, performing arts and psychology. Wow, okay, psychology, uh-oh, watch out for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Getting, uh, uh, yeah. Are you nuts, are you nuts? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I got my psychology degree from pro wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got my, uh, I got my double doc doctorate in Hollywood, <laughs> yeah. in Hollywood psychology. That's hilarious for sure. Good. But I, but I, I'm, thank, I'm thankful for all the stuff that's happened to me. I'm really, 
I'm, I'm thankful every day with all the people I meet, including today. And, uh, you know, just keep, you're going to meet a lot of people with me, Chris, even though, you know, a lot of people as I do as well. <laughs> yeah, we do. We, we do. We have common people. What else, Chris, what's on your mind? Well, I mean, I mean, you. Well, I'm just listening. Just it's exciting. You've laid out the blueprint for someone else to come to Hollywood. What you described, everything, and that what you went through. So, you know, it's just an exciting story. Very exciting story. Um, yeah. You what is it? Are you written your memoir yet? Have you written your memoir? Wow, you're the you're. I think officially, Neil, you're like the fourth person that says you should write a memoir. I'll tell you this, you Chris and Neil. I did a. I had a TV, TV series. Uh, called Any Day Now on uh, Paramount and Lifetime Network. Um, and it, it took place in Birmingham, Alabama. And we were on for four years. It's a wow. great, great series from 1998 to, nine, to 2002. And it was just a great series. And it was great because I have uh, relatives in Birmingham and friends and Jim Klopman in Birmingham, if you're, if you're listening to this. Hey Jim, uh, was down there, and and we uh, we shot it in Hollywood, but we we would go to Birmingham once a year and uh, have a little writers thing and say hi to people. And it was about the civil rights struggle, uh, you know, in uh, in nineteen uh, nineteen sixty four, sixty five, sixty six. Yeah, wow. cool. Yeah, just it, just an incredible time. You know, I was gonna I was gonna hit on that because you talking about Birmingham, and you know. Right now, I'm sitting in a little town called, actually called Utah, Alabama. And so, you know, that's really right now, we're about probably just an hour away from Birmingham. So I yeah. go there a lot. Yeah, I like it down there. I'm very comfortable down there. Of course, there's a lot of Malkies in, in the South. And so, uh, so I'm, I'm super comfortable down there and I, I like it a lot. So, so and I was fortunate to, they go, they go, well, can you speak? Can you speak Alabama? And I said, what? <laughs> what? So, Chris, how do you speak Alabama? Um, well, you know. I'm, Alabama, roll tide is how you speak it. But, uh, that's, that's how you roll, roll tide. Chris doesn't have that accent. Chris doesn't have that. Uh, you know what I mean? Alabama accent. No, no. I, I, actually, I'd go, I'd go pretty far back in the woods, and, and the network guys go, you can't talk that Southern. I said, well, you know. But actually, from, from an acting standpoint, here's an acting note, okay? Um, accents are always driven by emotion. Now, I can be in ATL with my cousin Richard, and we'll be talking like this, you know? But then if, uh, if, if, if Georgia State scores, scores a touchdown, Richard will go, all right, you see what he did, man? I mean, he... And he'll go way deep in the woods. I love that accent. That's fantastic. Uh all right, well, Chris, we are running out of time, Dr. Hall. So go ahead and summarize Chris Malky for us. Uh-oh. Oh, no problem at all, man. This, this is just, you know, it's just a great interview with, with a great, wonderful individual who, you know, oh. well-known. I mean, he's a big star. And so, oh. I mean, I'm just so excited that he was able to open up. And on this show, you know, audience, they like to hear personally, you know, and they get to kind of get to know the actors and stars on a personal from the show. And that's what he did. I mean, he talked about his life. And, um, you know, what he's doing now, still in Hollywood, and you know, like I said, uh, so great. And um, thanks for coming on the show, Chris. I really appreciate it. Well, you're too kind, Chris, and I'm, I'll see you down there, and let's, let's get some grits and greens, okay? Oh, yeah, that's part of my there tours in Alabama for my pro wrestling tour, so you'll be part of it, Chris. Cool. You know, yeah, yeah, remember, we're going to have this big, we're going to try, we have to go to every, like, if we're really going to do premieres, the premieres had to be where wrestling towns, really. You know, Alabama's a definite wrestling town if we're going to be premiering in these movies. And who knows the series of things that we're going to be doing together. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Chris. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Hall. All right, that was a special no summer. Thanks, Chris. Please show in the Dr. Christopher Hall show. Guys, take care. Okay. Here, uh, we're going to talk some real fun stuff today with my guests. And, you know, I get excited uh, to talk about financials and different things and how you could save money. Chris Fair is my guest. He's a licensed CPA, but he has a much more of a different story than that. Chris, Chris, thanks for stopping by because you figured out that you had a different mission, even though you went for count for, to school to be an accountant. Yeah, that's right, Neil. Thanks for having me on your program. Um, very, very different uh, than your, I guess, typical. CPA. Um, I did get to start off working in accounting for the 
uh, stock and bond portfolio for State Farm Insurance Company and learned an enormous amount, about $100 billion of different investments that set me off on my path. Okay. So when did you figure out it's not CPA? I want to go a different route. State Farm taught you that? You said, okay. Yeah, State yeah, State Farm taught me that. I actually was able to, uh, I was recruited to be part of a team at State Farm to develop the mutual fund family that they ended up selling to the public. So we did a lot of testing. I read a lot of prospectuses, which was not a lot of fun, um, and did some financial modeling. And then we rolled that out to the public. But in the meantime, I was recruited by another insurance company named Horace Mann um, in Springfield, Illinois, to be their president of their broker dealer and their mutual fund family. Uh, so I moved over to that. And at that location, you know, we did an enormous amount there. But after about seven years, I realized that corporate America is really not what I'm cut out for. I'm more entrepreneurial and I want to help individuals and businesses. Uh, so that's when I went out on my own as a wealth advisor. All right. So let's talk wealth advising for businesses today. The reason I'm interested in that, because I'm a business myself and you look at so many different people now are getting, especially baby boomers, are looking to retire and they don't know what to do with their business, right? right. Some of them don't even sell it, which is crazy, right? And they don't figure out how they're going to do that. So what do you do when you work with businesses? Well, we do an enormous amount. Uh, it, it just depends upon the size of the business. You know, if you've got over $5 million in revenue, we definitely want to look at, hey, maybe a captive insurance company might work for you so you can self-insure and make the margin that your insurance company's going to make. And for the right business, we can even not only make you money on your insurance, but turn that money into tax-free retirement money when you do go to sell the business. Uh, if you're a smaller business, you know, we'll definitely look at compensation systems and things that you can do, the holes in the tax code. And Neil, I explained it this way, and this was stolen, not original by me, but the tax code is a series of red lights and green lights. And a red light is stop, you owe a tax. So those are the estate taxes, income tax, capital gains taxes, all of those are in there. And the industry is focused on, I cannot let my client run a red light, right? Because they'll get in trouble. They'll go to jail or they'll get, you know, have the IRS on them forever. So what what the most of the CPA industry focuses on is compliance with current tax law, which the problem is it changes every year. So really, if you're a red light CPA, which is compliance focused, all you can do is look backwards at what happened last year and try to minimize this year's taxes. But there are green lights in the tax code, which is an exception from paying the tax, paying the tax with someone else's money, creating deductions, using all those things that some people call loopholes that are in the tax code. And it's forward looking. It's right. how do we really move the needle, save hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars for businesses and families over their entire lifetime or multiple lifetimes. So it's a different focus. And it's not the CPA's fault that they're red light focused because they change the rules every year. So you can't do both, but you need both a red light and a green light CPA to help you out. All right. So let's talk about this because there's a lot. There's a lot yeah. to unpack, Chris. Sure. And, you're, and, and I heard this one time listening to Robert Kiyosaki about yeah. how businesses are able to uh, not pay as much in taxes because of investing and stuff. This whole insurance company thing. So you basically become an insurance company or is how that really works? It's really that because I heard only first person ever taught me that was watching yeah. Robert Kiyosaki, who I've had yeah. on my show twice, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. I love his book and his his philosophy. It's really great. So a captive insurance company simply means you're self-insuring. So if let's say you're a, a construction business and you have you know $10 million of revenue every year, well, you're paying for a lot of liability insurance, a lot of insurance on automobiles, work comp, all kinds of other things. And you're maybe not paying for um business interruption insurance, like happened when the lockdowns took place and many construction companies all of a sudden had employees but no revenue. Uh, so what you do is instead of paying for that insurance through an insurance company, you set up your own insurance company, send the premiums to yourself, your own insurance company, and then we'll reinsure, buy some reinsurance for a certain level for catastrophic coverages, but then you'll cover some of the incidental uh, events that happen. And there's a there's a deduction, a part of the tax code called 831B. And what it allows for a captive is to have a tax deduction for those premiums from your company going into your other insurance company. 
and then tax-free growth inside. And then there are strategies for getting that money out uh, when you retire or sell the business so that the owner can get it out tax-free. So it's almost tip, triple tax-free or tax-advantageous, tax-deductible on the way in, tax-free growth, tax-free on the way out if done right. Uh, so it's really an exciting way to um, make money on the margin that the insurance company is making money on, but you're doing it yourself. Let's talk about this. This is really interesting. Let's talk about business, smaller businesses are not making 5 million or more in revenue. What do they do to kind of decrease their taxes using insurance and stuff? Sure, sure. Uh, well, a lot of it is compensation systems. Uh, there are section 162 bonus plans or executive bonus plans. And you can even do use some leverage for those. And what those are, are plans that are discriminatory, um, not like a 401k plan where you have to cover everyone or a pension plan where you have to cover all of your employees. But it's using a, an insurance vehicle to create a tax deferred compensation or an executive bonus plan that allows for, again, usually some tax deduction or, or tax neutral event on the way in and definitely tax free money on the way out. And Neil, you can use this for um, key employees as well to both golden handcuff them to your company with the promise of a large retirement plan. And if something happens to them along the way and they, they have an accident or die early, your company gets a key man insurance bonus payout, but their family also gets a large payout that can take, you know, either a lump sum or up to 10 years of income that they wouldn't otherwise receive in a normal, in a normal compensation plan. So the challenges of the of people that don't know this, that's the thing, right? You're educating people, right? Not many yeah. people know about this. Their CPAs usually don't tell them this stuff, right? Well, yeah, they don't. And, and it's not like they teach this to CPAs. They don't teach this to most insurance agents anymore. These used to be very, very popular programs. And in fact, life insurance was the number one employer benefit prior to the advent of 401k plans. Um, but it's fallen out of favor. It's complex. And Neil, it's called life insurance. No one likes life insurance because of the name. They they associate it with the, you know, the guy with the plaid suit and who won't stop knocking at your door or calling you up. But it's really the hidden part of the tax code. And Ed Slot even says the number one loophole or the number one hole in the tax code is overfunded life insurance. And do you think that'll ever change? The uh... Uh, do I think it'll change? I don't know. It has changed a couple of times, um, most recently in the 1980s, where um, really, really wealthy families and people were dumping an enormous amount of money into life insurance policies that had smaller death benefits and really taking advantage of that tax-free growth inside of it. Well, the IRS didn't like that. They penalized it because it was a tax shelter and it truly was a tax shelter. So what they did is they made a requirement that there has to be a relationship between death benefit and, and the funding or the cash value so that it's a realistic life insurance policy and not a, not a tax shelter. That's rule 7702, getting deep into the weeds. And that means you have to follow some certain basics. But most people think about life insurance as just an expense. It is up to that line of where you put money into it, but there's a whole nother level where you can stuff an enormous amount of money into a life insurance policy that grows tax deferred and can be taken out tax free during your lifetime as supplemental income uh, as long as it's designed correctly. And it's complex. It's very complicated strategies. They have to be administered and monitored every year, but they're but but it's a nothing will beat it over time. Sounds like it. wow, a lot a lot of stuff. Your 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 wealth of knowledge, uh, Chris. Well, let's talk about the individual person now. We've talked business because I'm a I'm an entrepreneur. I wanted to learn those things. Now I can take that and take that back to my good friend Alan Porter and say, Alan, oh, I want to learn more about this stuff. And I'll probably be going back to Chris. But yeah. let's talk about specifically enough the individual, the individual person, how they should use life insurance policies and annuities as a way to, as a really good uh, retirement vehicle? Sure. Uh, well, for an individual, let's say you're not yet retired and you're still working. You can set up one of these plans similar to an executive bonus or a deferred compensation plan that we do for a business or a business owner. You can do that for yourself. 
And the benefits of that is it's not income limited. So if you make too much money to contribute, for instance, to a Roth IRA, you can contribute a maximum amount to a life insurance policy and then grow a bunch of money tax-free. Um, sometimes it's called a LERP or a life insurance retirement plan. Um, great book out there called The Power of Zero by David McKnight. Chapter five explains this in detail. It's really simple, great book. I've interviewed David, by the way. Yeah, I had yeah, David on my show. Yeah, with, yeah. With Alan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy, I love him. But um, I just wish I had written that book. <laughs> but uh, those, are, those are great strategies for people. And another one is, let's say you're already retired or really close to retirement, but let's say you're already retired and you've got a significant amount of money trapped in a 401k plan or an IRA. And I say trapped because it hasn't been taxed yet. So if you've got a million dollars in there, you don't really know how much is yours because the IRS hasn't taken their share and they can change how much their share is anytime they want by Congress changing the tax rates. So it's really not yours. How do we rescue that? Well, you can use a life insurance plan to rescue that by taking the money out and instead of converting it to a Roth, converting it to a life insurance retirement plan and designed correctly we can do that for no taxes out of your pocket, as long as there's enough money to work with. All right. Best place people can find information on you, Chris, where can they go? Well, they can go to Chris uh, or uh, they can go to FF, that's F as in freedom, F as in freedom, wealthandtax.com. So ffwealthandtax.com is my website or send me an email at Chris at ffwealthandtax.com. All right. All right. Uh, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley Show. I'm excited first to welcome my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series and uh, owner of many different companies. Paul, how are you? Now you're excited about our guest. I, I'm always excited to see Bill Nelson. Uh, he is he has written a book that's just almost ready to be uh, released. It's in pre-order now. So guys out there, get your get your pre-orders in on this book because it's great. It's it's action adventure. It's mystery. It's romance. It's it's a thriller. It's it's got all kinds of things in it. So, and you, this is one you you don't want to miss. So, welcome, Bill. Thank you. Hey, Bill. So we're going to kind of delve into specifically enough beyond the pages of Blood and Fire and a deep dive into coastal mysteries with author Bill Nelson. All right. So let's talk about the intricate characters, the shades of gray and black in the black and white world. Can you kind of go into about these character a little deeper into the characters? Yeah, so the, uh, the the protagonist, as I've discussed before, is a is a guy that's kind of a full spectrum guy. He's he's capable of being very black and very white and very gray, uh, and I think that he's not uh, he's not uncommon in that way. He's like a lot of people, maybe most people. Uh, generally speaking, he tends to err on the side of, of, you know, of the good side of the force, but sometimes he can go all the way dark, especially if he thinks his family is threatened or somebody that he loves is threatened, then he, he's, he can be absolutely ruthless. And so that, that personality type uh, is actually reminiscent of, of people I have known and even of my own family. Uh, and uh, I have, I had an uncle, uh, and one of the characters in the book is is loosely based on one of my uncles. And my this uncle was uh, a notorious bad guy. Uh, he was, you know, very feared around Houston, and and uh, had a long history of being uh, extremely harsh with people. And yet, as his nephew. He was very sweet and very kind to me. And as a child, I really noticed that a lot, that I, I knew everything about him. I'd heard all the stories, but yet my personal interactions with him were, were super pleasant. And it always was a little bit difficult for me to, to uh, reconcile that. And, uh, and uh, you know, he was the kind of guy that, you know, if I had car trouble or anything, you know, happened, anytime day or night he'd be my first call he was the guy that i would call because he would come and fix it and 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 never mention it to my mom or or my dad or anybody else he'd keep it to himself 
and it would be, you know, our little secret. Of course, I don't know if maybe he planned on, on leveraging that against me down the road or something, but um, he didn't live long enough for me to find out. And, uh, but, it, you know, it's just that kind of uh, extreme difference and demeanor and approach was something that really informed uh, several of the characters in the book, actually. Okay, let's talk about how do personal experiences and observation influence the portrayal of the characters' inner struggles? Say that again. How do personal experiences and observations influence the portrayal of characters' inner struggles? Well, so I think that because some of the subject matter is personal, right, uh, and it comes out of my personal well of of, of experiences, uh, I, I think it helped me to kind of keep a lot of those things grounded and not go overboard and really make it real. And, um, and uh, because I, I live those things, right. And I know that there is, there's a lot in the world of authoring about excitement and adventure and uh, you know, uh, sensationalism, but I kind of, I think I lean more on trying to keep some of those things uh, simple and credible and grounded. And, and that came out of my own uh, experience. So I think the, the net of that is that maybe those situations are a little bit more believable. So that when you, when you're reading it and you hear about the protagonist doing this ridiculous thing that he does, but you'll kind of understand the context of it. And it's it's presented to you in a kind of a simple, grounded way. Maybe it's a little bit more believable. All right. So we're going to delve into the high stakes conflicts portrayed in your novel. We talked about this in the first episode. How do real world events and challenges faced by coastal communities influence these fictional elements? Oh, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of that, right? So I drew a lot from actual things that I've witnessed growing up around here and people that I know. And so, you know, the book talks about, you know, the Italian mafia presence in Galveston and along the Bay Shore and up in the city. That's a very real thing. Uh, of course, I changed all the names. So I didn't use any of the, the actual names. <laughs> but uh, but I grew up new in a lot of those people. In fact, I dated for a long time. I dated a girl who was from that world and, um, and uh, I dated her on and off for like a decade. So there is a lot of that. Um, and then, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of the conflicts that the, the fisherman community goes through, uh, the commercial fishing community goes through, that's all based on real things. Uh, you know, in particular, you know, we've had various different groups of fishermen vie for domination of the particularly fruitful part of the Gulf Coast between, you know, Beaumont and Corpus Christi, uh, where there's uh, some enormous fisheries. We have, you know, fishermen that come down from, from Louisiana, and there's uh, a group of fishermen out of Port Arthur, Port Arthur, Texas, that's always really trying to have a dominant footprint. And, uh, and, and some of those uh, situations can get a little hairy, uh, you know, not so much lately. It seems to have all been kind of worked out in, in recent years. But when I was a kid growing up, you know, you hear about people getting into gunfights out there in the Gulf because of, uh, you know, people fishing in the fisheries where they weren't supposed to be uh, fishing. And uh, then, um, you know, add to that, that the, uh, the, the big port, which is Port of Houston. So it's probably Port of Houston is, the largest port by dollar value in the world. So there's more, you know, commerce flowing in and out of that port than any other port literally in the world. And uh, it's not the biggest uh, port by tonnage or volume, but by dollar value, it's it's really massive. And, uh, and so it's very important to the state of Texas. It's very important to the city of Houston. And if, if in their official capacity, they decide to run over some fishermen to uh, to optimize their 
their tax base or whatever that looks like, uh, they're not opposed to doing that. So, uh, so there's some of those things that, that come into play as well. Impressive. Uh, submit, let's go to the cinematic vision from novel to potential screenplay. Uh, explore the visual elements with the novel and discuss the potential for adapting blood and fire into a screenplay. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's something I do think about. So I think ultimately, you know, and I mentioned in, in one of the previous interviews that I was really uh, positively influenced by, uh, by the whole Yellowstone series. And so I, I kind of think if, if, if I had, if I could do it the way I really see it in my mind is it would be a Netflix series, right? Uh, to where, you know, each book in the series of books would be a whole season. And, uh, and that way, I think you'd have the, the proper uh, time investment to really do the story justice. And then, uh, you know, I, one of the things in movies that really stuck out to me over the years, I was watching Forrest Gump. And there's a scene in Forrest Gump where uh, Forrest and Captain Dan survive a hurricane. And the next morning, uh, you know, the sun is coming up over, uh, over the Gulf. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 